Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. This instalment sees us tackle book 41 in the long-running fighting fantasy series, Master of Chaos by Keith Martin, with illustrations by David Gallagher and cover art by Les Edwards, depicting a very cross-looking two-headed dragon emerging from some kind of whirling portal. Perhaps the dragon is annoyed to be using the magical equivalent of public transport, but if that's the case, it just needs to get over itself. No one is too good for public transport, two-headed dragon, not even you. We've come across Keith Martin's work before. He did Stealer of Souls, which was fine, and Vault of the Vampire, which was excellent. David Gallagher is a perfectly safe pair of hands on the art. I can't imagine it will be exceptional, but it'll certainly be competent and reasonably characterful, which is all I really ask. This has every chance of being a really good book. It's one I'm completely unfamiliar with as well, and that's always nice. I'll keep the notices brief. I'm still planning to do a second series of Popular Antiquarian, but I also need to finish my current game book, and that's currently uppermost in my mind, as it's become a slightly bigger project than originally envisaged. I should still get it done before the end of the year, but it does mean everything else needs to sit on the back burner for a while. I'm past the halfway point now and progressing nicely. It will of course be going out to all my lovely patrons at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom, and if you want to get in on that action, all you have to do is pledge as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. Let's take a look at the rules. We've got skill, stamina and luck all present and correct, but we're very quickly told that there's a small difference from our usual starting character because we don't start with any equipment at all. There's not a portion of steak and ale pie or set of leather armour in sight on this one. We're told that a backpack can hold up to 12 provisions, but then we're told we don't actually have a backpack, so storage of crisps and cheese platters is of purely academic interest. Until we obtain a weapon, we'll be doing only one point of damage with our puny, puny fists, and until we obtain armour and a shield, we'll be fighting with our skill reduced by two. I really like this. Firstly, because it creates a sense of fear and uncertainty in the hardened fighting fantasy fan, removing the familiar rules is just as potent as writing new rules. Secondly, because it's so simple. There's almost nothing new to really learn, merely the application of the existing rules in a slightly new way. I particularly applaud the decision not to try and create a new set of rules for unarmed combat, which must have been a serious temptation. The rules also specify that upon obtaining some packed lunches, you can only eat one portion of provisions at any one time, which makes sense. Obviously, you can still eat two meals very close together by doing them on consecutive paragraphs, so it doesn't make a massive difference, but sometimes rules aren't about the direct outcome, but are instead about building a slightly more believable world, and I think this does that really well. It pushes you to eat more frequently as well, since you don't know when you'll need your stamina for a fight. Previously, there was a tendency to hoard provisions a bit, in case you came across another means of healing, and then eat three or four meals at a single sitting when your stamina dropped dangerously low. 
this rule goes some small way towards mitigating that. We also get a new stat to play with. Notoriety is a measure of how well known of a wrongen you are in the local area. It starts off at zero, and once it reaches eight, the forces of law and order will kick you out of town. Simple, effective, and creates an obvious tension, since you'll be needing to engage in all manner of skullduggery to get the kit that's needed to survive in the hostile world of fighting fantasy. Removing all your gear gives a strong motivation in one direction, and providing a mechanic that pushes in the opposite direction is great. I love these push-pull mechanics, indeed. I used one for my game, Percentage Killbot, where the characters can either survive on the front lines of an alien war, or maintain their ties to their life at home, but will struggle to do both of those things at once. It's not advanced game design by any stretch of the imagination, but it is something that almost always works. Finally, we have a list of six skills which we can choose three from. They're all fairly self-explanatory. They are acute hearing, animal wisdom, blind sight, which lets you fight effectively in darkness, climbing, move silently, and tracking. Skills are great in game books since they build in options for making subsequent playthroughs feel different, and so no complaints here whatsoever. I've rolled up my character, who I've decided to call Tempo Bladdersack. They have a skill of 8, a stamina of 22, and a luck of 10. And for once, I've rolled up a character completely honestly, since the rules are fairly insistent that even the weakest character has every chance of success. We shall find out. I've chosen the skills of Acute Hearing, Blind Sight, and Move Silently, because I really want to lean into the idea of being a desperate criminal, and these seem the most delinquent of the available options. With all that out of the way, let's play Master of Chaos. Background A conclave of wizards is a rare event for a warrior, even one of your talents, to be invited to. But here you are, intrigued by their summons, Finding them gathered round the deathbed of a venerable great wizard suggests that matters of great moment must be afoot. It was an astral slayer. The spell to ward it away takes so long to cast, and we had not expected it. The old wizard's chest convulses with a racking cough, and he weakly spits blood into the bowl held out for him by the healers. We have failed and his voice fades away into another spasm of coughing. The younger wizard puts his hand on the fevered brow, lined with age, and murmurs words of consolation. It could not have been foreseen. Such a thing has not been known for scores of years. Yet the staff has been taken. If only we possessed the power to destroy the infernal thing. Now it is surely in the hands of someone of great power and evil. Who else could want such a thing? The grey-robed healer holds the old man's hand and bids him rest. The effort of talking seems to have drained the sorcerer, for, with a few inaudible words, his head slumps back onto the pillow, and his eyes slowly close. You leave the sick room with the younger wizard, both silent for a few moments. That man was the foremost of our fellowship, my greatest teacher. 
he confides, and his power was as a candle in a strong wind pitted against the evil that opposes us. The staff has to be regained. It is a staff of rulership, one of the old staffs of power. In the wrong hands it can be used to unify the forces of evil and chaos that are usually divided against each other. Any power strong enough to send an astral slayer is also strong enough to use the staff to that end. The havoc such a mage could wreck is unimaginable. The wizard's manner and the urgency with which you have been summoned to the inner council of wizards tells you that he is not exaggerating. But if this is an affair of great magic, why have you sent for me? I'm only a warrior. Only? Are there not giants who speak of you with fear? Well, possibly, you agree, taken aback by this outburst. And then there was the matter of that fire-breathing great worm a few years back. Was there not? Amber on the wizard adds tartly. You plead that you had enjoyed some good fortune in that triumph, but Amberon has made his point. We cannot send a wizard to recover the staff. The man who has it now would sense the approach of a magician long before he could ever get near it. It has to be a warrior. You don't have a reply ready for that comment, but at least you do have a query for this wizard, who seems to have everything arranged for you. So you must know who has it. Amberon nods. We know where it is, too. Well, that's something, you agree. That depends on how you look at it. It's in cool. The land of chaos. The dark continent, home to grim-faced men of evil nature, sorcerous horrors, monstrosities of warped chaos. This is hardly reassuring. In Kabesh, to be exact, a ruined city swarming with monsters and the undead. Oh, wonderful, you reply dryly. I think I've heard enough. But Amberon grabs you by the arm and won't let you make for the archway which leads to the outside. Two scryers nearly died to find out that much. They aren't going to have taken that risk for nothing. And anyway, while the staff is in cool, don't think for a moment that you or anyone else will be safe from its power anywhere on Titan. He looks at you with complete certainty that he is not deceiving you. You will not be able to ignore this problem. Your passage has been arranged. You'll travel on the Diablo, a nasty little vessel under the command of Captain Shagrot. He's a criminal, a liar, and a sadistic bully, but about the only sort of man who would set sail for cool nowadays. Of course, you won't be able to travel as a warrior. That would arouse suspicions at once. You are going to be press-ganged tonight and shipped out as a galley slave on the night tide. We have arranged this. You cannot believe your ears. I absolutely refuse, you blurt out. I don't think so, Amberon says coolly. Take it as a tribute to your resourcefulness and reputation that we consider that only you will have a fighting chance under these circumstances. Surely I have made the importance of this task obvious? Amberon grips your arm with a greater strength than you would have believed this slim young man possessed. The staff has to be retrieved. If you refuse, a weaker man will have to go in your place. And before long, Shanzikul will overrun this land. Then you will be dead in any event. The wizard's remorseless logic and powerful persuasion win you over. Grimly, you agree to accept this quest. 
It is going to be the most challenging one of your eventful life. When you get to Ashkios, you'll have to slip away from the ship. That shouldn't be too difficult. By then the crew will be as drunk as lords. But you'll have to find a way to equip yourself with armour, enough food and a weapon. And either have some gold for passage by riverboat up the Ashen River or make your way to Kabesh some other way. How you get that money is up to you, but we can give you a head start. One of the other wizards hands you over a pair of dilapidated boots. These are going to help, you think? But Amberon takes each of them and deftly twists the boot heels. Inside each is a small depression containing a single gold piece. He shows you how to twist the heel to reveal the secret cavity and how to seal the boot heel again. These will buy you enough food to keep you alive for a few days at any rate, he says. One more thing I can tell you about the man. If he is a man who has the staff, we found out that he is a wizard as we feared. His name is Shanzikul. Oddly enough, at one time there was a very powerful and evil wizard of the very same name who allied himself with the Dark Elves. He and his warped elven followers were captured and slain by a huge band of wild men who flayed and quartered the wizard and then watched as the vultures picked his bones clean. All that happened some three hundred years ago, and our magical scrying leaves us in no doubt that this is the same man who now has the staff of rulership, a wizard of such powers and with this terrible relic to wield. You must overcome him and return the staff to us. This will give you some idea of the gravity of the problem. After further feeble protestations, you are forced to fall in with their plans. Hoping desperately that the meagre amount of money you have in your boot heels will be enough to keep you alive when you land in cool, if you manage to even get that far, you walk out into the night, down to the docks where, feigning drunkenness, you await the blackjack blow on the back of your head and waking up a galley slave aboard the Diablo. So there is the introduction. Pretty good, I think, as introductions go. The stakes are familiar. Evil fella has got one of the enormously poorly secured, deadly magical items that wizards seem to insist on having on hand at any given time. It's like they can only feel comfortable if they've got the magical equivalent of uh, an unsecured atom bomb on hand at all times. Still, let us press on. So we're aboard the galley. There is a uh, very nice, actually, picture of the underside of the galley, which is shrouded in darkness with, uh, uh, I'm going to say, an orc. I think it's an orc. Yes, it's an orc. Uh, wielding the lash against a cowering slave. Tremendous use of black in the background to really give this piece a uh, pronounced impact. I very much like it, actually. You have spent untold days as a galley slave on the infernal Diablo. You are given only watery slops to eat, not enough to maintain your strength. Deduct three points from your stamina score. Stamina now 19. You are kept chained to the benches of the galleys and you cannot move far. The smell of bad food and sweat is overpowering on the cramped slaver. This morning, the second mate, a repulsively ugly, warty orc, is in a filthy temper 
and he is taking it out on the slave sitting next to you. The orc is lashing out with his whip at poor defenceless Ramon, with whom you have formed a friendship. Will you stay quiet and ignore this, or try to stop the orc's brutal flogging? Well, we are familiar with being enslaved from the last book we played, the uh, tremendously enjoyable Valley of the Bones. And if that book taught me anything, it's that the best strategy when someone's getting it in the neck is to sit down and stay quiet. After the orc with his bloodied whip has gone, you hear the sound of muttering coming from the deck above you. Do you have the acute hearing skill? I do indeed. You catch only fragments of a conversation, but you do hear one of the crew curse and say that having a dark elf on board is bad luck. But he seems honest and decent enough, comes the reply. You also think you hear the name Kabesh mentioned, which makes you wonder. So, uh, a little clue. Do you love a little clue? This uh, fellow seems remarkably trusting for uh, a member of a villainous crew of slavers, but uh, maybe he's right. Maybe the Dark Elf is actually the perfectly decent, upstanding citizen. I somehow doubt it. Another week of this nightmarish voyage has passed. Deduct two points from your stamina caused by the inadequate food. Stamina now 17. Today a squall is up and the ship runs before the wind so you don't have to row. The second mate is lashing out again drunk on rum and he picks on you. You can either passively suffer his beatings or try knocking him down with your chains. He is close enough for you to attempt this. Well, you can beat up my best friend all you like, but if you mess with Tempo Bladdersack, you'd best come ready for a rumble. I'm going to try and knock him down with the chains. I imagine this is a very bad plan. You knock the drunken wretch down, and the other galley slaves are only too glad to help you strangle the life out of your hated oppressor. But the first mate of the ship has seen what has happened, and you are dragged out in chains to walk the plank as an example to the other slaves. Dumped into the sea at Scimitar Point, you gasp for air as you see the triangular fin heading towards you through the blue waves. Then you scream in agony as your legs are ripped away by the savage shark. You have met a tragic and early end in your quest, and your adventure ends here. So, that was incredibly brief. My suspicions were entirely right. Beating up their crew is not something that the uh, slavers are going to take particularly kindly to. So um, we will definitely invoke the Sausage Finger bookmark rule and make a uh, more cowardly but sensible choice. So we will passively suffer the second mate beating. I do hope we're going to get a chance to settle accounts with this uh, deeply unpleasant character at some point. You must deduct three points from your stamina because of the brute's flogging, but finally he lurches away and picks on someone else. Stamina now 14. So we've lost six points of stamina without even a chance to uh, recuperate. It's doing a good job of um, selling the idea that this is a very dangerous mission and a deeply unpleasant way to travel even worse than the National Express. The first mate comes staggering down below decks again and looks around, 
his bloodshot eyes staring wildly from beneath his mane of matted, greasy black hair. He grins wildly and mutters something inaudible. Then he screams out, You scum! Two men for cleaning the deck now! I'll have uh, you and you, you worthless vermin! He points at you. Your chains are removed, but then your leg is fettered with a ball and chain when you are hauled up on deck. You are occupied scrubbing the decks with a hard bristle brush and seawater when suddenly pandemonium breaks loose as huge suckered tentacles rise into the air out of the sea and lash at the men on deck. Close by, the despicable Captain Shagrot draws his scimitar as a vast limb of the kraken attacking the Diablo lunges at him. There is a picture of the uh, captain who... Um, is wielding his scimitar against a uh, medium-sized tentacle rather than a genuinely enormous one. Yeah, quite honestly, he's um, guilty of perpetrating the uh, very worst of pirate stereotypes with his uh, baggy trousers, spotted neckerchief worn as a uh, headscarf, eye patch, and parrot clinging frantically onto his arm as he plies his weapon. Yeah, he is the very model of a uh, scurvy sea dog, I would say. But uh, we now have a choice. You can either ignore what is happening and retreat to safety, or you can attack the tentacle which is lunging at the captain using your ball and chain as a weapon. Do you wish to fight? I have an effective skill of six... And I'm dealing one point of damage. I guess I'll deal two points of damage with the ball and chain. I don't really care if a slaver gets eaten by a kraken. Yeah, I will retreat to safety. You back away from the giant kraken, but the venomous captain is more than a match for the monster. With a few swift strokes from his scimitar, he severs the tentacle, then helps the men chop off the other ones that are attacking the ship. Soon the kraken is dead. But the captain isn't finished yet. Evilly, he eyes you with his one good eye, his black eye patch concealing the scarred pit where the other once lay. His malicious parrot squawks gleefully, Keel haw the landlubber! Keel haw the landlubber! And the captain agrees that this would be a suitable punishment for a seaman who wouldn't help his captain. With your wrists and ankles bound, you are soon gasping for air as you are dragged under the Diablo's barnacled keel. Every inch of movement and agony as your exposed flesh scrapes across the rough surface. Deduct four points from your stamina. Stamina now ten, meaning that I've lost twelve points of stamina on this voyage. I mean, four stamina points seems like a uh, relatively mild keel hauling, if I'm honest. Uh, most people keel hauled, I don't think, lived through the experience. You are hauled up from the sea and thrown back in the galleys in chains. Back in the galley, the captain increases rations so as to keep you alive, but you are now desperately weak and hungry. You begin to lose track of time with the monotony of rowing. But one day the evil parrot, which normally sits on the captain's shoulder, flies below deck and lands close to you. Settling, it launches into a diatribe of curses and oaths. The hateful little pest is close enough to grab. Do you want to strangle the little horror or simply ignore it? Parrots love stirring the pot. They really do. Yeah, they're ferociously bright creatures. 
and like most ferociously bright creatures they get bored easily and are remarkably inventive at coming up with ways to uh, break the boredom on this occasion though um, I think it's just going to be simply ignoring it eventually the parrot gets bored with berating you and flies away at last the hellish voyage is over the crew are drinking themselves stupid in celebration at the lookout's cry of land ahoy the diablo makes her way down the estuary towards ashkios and anchors close to the town the crewmen release you and the other galley slaves from your chains rope you all together and batten down the hatches to keep you inside you are able to slip your bonds easily enough but the hatch is a different matter you are baffled until luckily a few drunken crewmen come down to have some fun with their whips as they do you slip past them and climb up onto the deck do you have the move silently skill i do indeed oh i do hope i'm going to get a chance to stab at least one or two of these absolute rotters alas no you sneak past the half-drunk watch clamber down the ropes and into the sea swimming away towards the land to starboard ah i wonder if there is a way through that does let you do the odd murder yeah it turns out being a slave is rubbish and makes you very angry probably not news but you know nice to have it confirmed wet tired weak you reach land at last you stagger up the shoreline and find a fisherman's deserted hut where you can rest here you fall into a deep sleep you awaken in mid-morning somewhat refreshed regain two stamina points yay stamina now twelve you emerge into the bright sunlight and peer around why you can see ashkios less than a mile away striding out you are soon at the town gates and you enter unchallenged to look round the place ashkios is divided into districts these are shown on the map on the inside front cover of this book you are now free to go where you wish so uh, this edition does not appear to have the map shown on the inside front cover but i can more or less guess what it looks like um and thankfully there is a list of places that we can go so we've got shops warehouses entertainers square the markets the docks or the infamous old quarter um we're told to make note of the uh, paragraph which leads to the exit of the city because if our notoriety reaches eight or higher we must leave the city at once to avoid being arrested which of these options do we fancy um well i've got a whopping two gold let's go to the shops and see if two gold will buy me at least a sword once again i have absolutely no idea what a gold piece is worth but yeah we'll go to the shops whenever you go shopping you must keep careful track of how much money you spend and adjust your treasure accordingly there are several shops you may care to visit do you want to try food shops buchanan's stables and travel shop the weapons shop of ali haji sheikh hostelt the herbalist or kifiri's magic shop uh let's go and see if we can get some food first i think no actually let's go and have a look at the weapon shop first so that we know what kind of money we need to get 
Ali Haji Sheikh keeps a good range of weapons and other useful supplies for the seasoned adventurer. So we've got a backpack at two gold pieces, crossbow at four, crossbow bolts, five of them for a single gold piece, lantern with oil, four gold pieces, leather armor with shield, eight gold pieces, and sword, five gold pieces. So we need 13 gold pieces all told in order to kit ourselves out. Uh, he will include a water skin and backpack with any purchase over two gold pieces. Uh, okay, there's a nice little picture of his shop. Um, he looks very serious, but he is indeed surrounded by all manner of tools of mayhem. So we know what we need to do. Uh, he'll also buy uh, swords and uh, lanterns for three gold pieces. Um, but we're warned that um, certain purchases will attract attention. So a crossbow, leather armour and a sword will all add one notoriety point, which is interesting. So that's another lovely example of that kind of push-pull design where you really want a leather armour and you really want a sword. And you may want a crossbow, but getting them will... Uh, significantly add to your notoriety so you're sort of thinking oh, maybe I'll leave it till the last minute before I leave but then there's the possibility that you might leave it too late and not be able to actually acquire a weapon and armor before you get kicked out of the city so uh, yeah lovely little bit of design and uh, I quite like the idea that the authorities are keeping tabs on who's tooling themselves up for serious action that makes sense as well we don't have enough money for anything except the backpack and we can get the backpack for free if we buy leather armor or a sword or what have you so yeah we will have no option but to leave and go and explore somewhere else so we're back at the hub so um where might we be able to acquire a bit of moolah maybe we can go to the entertainer's square and uh see if we can learn to break dance or something yeah we'll go to the entertainer's square entertainer's square is a great open space with benches and trestles and with drinking dens and stalls selling refreshments around you minstrels and bards street poets and animal trainers are entertaining the populace and looming above all the gladiatorial park dominates the square. It's going to be a bit bizarre if we end up going and fighting in the arena for the second game book in a row, but uh, I guess it is a bit of a classic. Do you have Jesper with you? We do not. Have you been to the district before? We have not. And if you've not been to the district and Jesper's not with you, then there's only one option. Do you have the acute hearing skill? I surely do. And you look around, listening to the musicians and watching the team of amazing juggling gnomes dressed in flamboyant colours, hurling plates and coloured balls up in the air. It's been so weird to live in a time when uh, juggling was the province of professional entertainers rather than the most tedious people on the planet. Then you catch a fragment of conversation coming up from one side. Tonight at Castrin's, then, we'll take out poison darts, mumble, mumble, mumble. Master says kidnap, mumble, mumble, mumble. 
You look around slowly and see two men in leather jerkins moving away in opposite directions. In the crowd, they easily melt away from your sight. Now, will you spend some more time in the square? Ask people discreetly about Canstrin, or leave here and go elsewhere. Let's ask people discreetly about Canstrin because I am all kinds of intrigued. You watch a group of elven mime artists and ask some people about the place if they know anything about Canstrin. God, imagine living in a world where mime artists were a form of entertainment rather than the most tedious people on the planet. I'm lost around here, you say ingenuously. I was supposed to meet somebody. One of the locals, frowning, says that Canstrin's is in the old quarter, and that it is a high-class drinking den, not for the likes of you. People start to mutter at mention of the place. Roll one die. If you roll a five or a six, their reaction is so strong that you gain one notoriety. It's the first die roll we've had. And we're already... I've been recording for... Yeah, over 45 minutes. I roll a two. No notoriety is gained. So, do we want to hang around here a bit longer? Yeah, I think we'll hang around here a bit longer. Have you fought a gladiator? I have not. In one corner of Entertainer's Square, a sudden roar goes up and you make your way to what looks like a giant bull ring to see what's going on. In the ring, a huge half-ogre wielding a metal-studded wooden club stands in triumph over the bloody body of a human warrior. This is gladiatorial combat. In the depraved city of Ashkios, this means combat to the death. Anyone can challenge the strutting half-ogre to gladiatorial combat. If you wish to proclaim a challenge, you'll be loaned leather armour, shield and a sword if you do not already have them. And you must return them after the fight. Twelve gold pieces to the victor. If you lose, you die. The next combat is announced, and it will be the last one in the current series, so it's now or never if you want to fight the half-ogre. Do you want to issue a challenge and fight the gladiator? Oh, I do, because 12 gold pieces would solve a considerable amount of my money worries. So, let's see what happens when we fight the half-ogre. Clad in your armour and grasping your sword, you step into the ring. A crowd roars with bloodlust as you move around, seeking an advantage of position and momentum for a first sword thrust. Among the crowd, Marshal Lakatos, the corrupt military dictator of the town, watches with sadistic amusement. Your life is in your own hands now, for this is a fight to the death. There is a picture of the gladiator. It is very much an okay picture. It's a very big club he's got. He's a big, sturdy lad as well. Uh, although he does look rather as though he's wearing a nappy. Yeah, it's a big old club with spikes in it. He's got a skill of 9 and a stamina of 14. I have a skill of 8 and a stamina of 12. So, theoretically, I am dead. But, uh, for the first time this adventure, and possibly the last time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the gladiator. I was reduced to 1 stamina point. And I spent two luck points on the combat. One to save me from death. Uh, when he reduced me to two stamina and hit me again. And one to uh, deal double damage on the subsequent round. 
to finish them off in one go. So uh, it's uh, not going well, this quest. Still, I have one and I've got some money and that's hopefully going to enable me to get some food because uh, if I don't get a cheese sandwich in the very near future, I'm just going to die. The huge half-ogre totters and falls and the crowd stands and cheers your triumph. Stewards in chainmail usher you away after you have taken your bows before the foot-stamping, shouting masses. You get your reward of 12 gold pieces, but you will now be the talk of the town at two points to your notoriety. Notoriety now two. You are allowed to rest and recuperate in a room near the stadium, looked after by a friendly innkeeper who gives you a meal. Regain four stamina points. Excellent. Stamina now five. His son had been foolish enough to challenge the gladiator, so the man is delighted that you have beaten the half-ogre. Now you must try another part of town. So we'll go to the markets in the hope that uh, there's opportunity for some more food there. Obviously I've just eaten a big portion of fish and chips, but yeah, I could use something else. Do you have some saffron which you want to sell? Which I do not. No, I don't have any saffron. So we just go on. It's an intriguing hint though. Is this the first time you've visited the market district? Yes, it is. Looking around, your attention is caught by an ill-tempered ugly man kicking a mongoose which he has on a leash. The little animal is trying to evade his blows. You move up, hoping to shame the brute into stopping his abuse of the little creature, which he does. He turns to you and spits on the ground. Little swine, he says, aiming a half-hearted kick at the mongoose. Supposed to be trained, in it? Does tricks, I was told. Won't do no tricks for me. Suddenly his eyes are full of that. Could this stranger be gullible, look? Wanna buy the little flea bag for three gold pieces? You could make a tasty pie out of him and his skin could make you a fair pair of gloves. Do you have the animal wisdom skill? I do not, but I wish I did. I love a mongoose. Mongooses are great. Mongooses? Mongoose. Mongoosei. Mongooses. I'm going to go with mongooses. Uh, I do not have the animal wisdom skill. Do you want to buy the mongoose? The man won't haggle, so you'll have to pay the asking price of three gold pieces. I have got the money. I do love animals. This is really tough. Without the animal wisdom skill, I can't imagine this mongoose will be of any actual use to me. Yet this man is clearly going to kill the mongoose, and I'm a sucker for an animal in distress. Even though it's a pretend mongoose. Even though it's a pretend, entirely fictional mongoose. I still can't bring myself to let him carry on kicking it, so I'm going to buy the mongoose. It reduces my gold to nine, which means I no longer have the price of a set of leather armour and a sword and one short the man hands over the leashes you pay him the money and he also gives you a small silver whistle supposed to come when he's cool with that he snarls but i never let him off the leash little varmint you pocket the whistle as you stroke the soft fur of the mongoose to your total amazement the mongoose twists its head around to look at you and then says thanks i'm a talking mongoose it adds unnecessarily he was a hateful brute, but I've got a feeling you're a decent person and will treat me fairly. Yep, for the approximately uh, two hours that I will 
continue to live for, I will treat him fairly. I think he's uh, optimistic about sticking with me for any length of time as I'm going to be dead before the end of the day. Shall we go for a stroll? Jesper the mongoose heads off towards the market stalls, pulling you along behind him. You are too dumbfounded to do anything but follow. Gain one luck point. Yeah. Luck now nine, and the very first unambiguously good thing that has happened so far this adventure. I wonder if you can do thieving for me. Merchants are buying and selling all kinds of wares in the market. Everything from food and fabrics to basilisk skin cloaks, kegs of gersh, the unspeakable orcish brew, and magic pots and pans that clean themselves after use. I remember reading about gersh in the uh, big titan book. Um, yeah, can't be any worse than Strongbow. The merchants themselves are very varied. Humans, dwarves, one or two elves, here and there a furtive gnome, man-orcs and even a lizard-man peddling patent medicines and necklaces of shark teeth. There is a picture of the market, which I would describe as thoroughly adequate. That is a perfectly serviceable depiction of some people shopping at a market. Do you have Jesper with you? I do indeed. Buy a couple of these weird-looking eggs on the stall, the mongoose advises you sagely. We can make some money out of them. The man-orc merchant wants one gold piece each for each of the two large, brown-veined, yellowish eggs, which he says are local delicacies. Very tasty indeed. If you want both eggs, he won't sell them singly. You'll have to pay him two gold. Fair enough. If you can't believe a talking mongoose, who can you believe? I do hope Jesper's not going to end up teaching me some valuable lesson about life, which is uh, usually the role of talking animals in uh, fantasy stories. Um, yeah, so two eggs... Uh, we do have an option uh, to say that we won't pay for them, which I guess means we could try and nick them, but we've still got money in hand, and Jesper seems to indicate that the eggs can be sold at a profit, so we'll buy them on this occasion. Let's find out how trustworthy this mongoose is. It's a sentence I never thought I'd be saying when I woke up this morning. You make your purchase, and Jesper immediately commandeers the eggs and snuggles down, covering them. Let's just sit in the sun for a while, shall we? he says, as if nothing unusual was going on. What sort of creature is this? Jesper tells you about his past and his many masters, most of whom were hunters or sages or nomad chiefs. You don't learn anything concerning your present quest from him, but you do learn that Jesper likes biting the heads off snakes, and you become quite engrossed with the conversation with him. People stop and stare at such a weird sight and one point to your notoriety. Notoriety now three. You only realise that time has been passing when Jesper shifts uncomfortably and then gets up. Not really my sort of habit, but I think we could make some gold here, says the mongoose airily, and you see that his body warmth has hatched the eggs. Out of the broken shells emerge two small chicks, already covered in brilliant multicoloured plumage and chirping in glorious melodic voices. People are stopping to admire them, and suddenly you are getting offers for them as men and women produce purses and start offering their gold. You sell the chicks for ten gold pieces for the pair. Gold now twenty-one. Jesper looks pleased as you pocket your booty. Look, I'll make a deal with you, says the mongoose. We'll go to Entertainers Square now and I'll do some of those dumb little tricks that tourists like to watch and that'll earn you some money. 
then you let me go for a while. I've got some uh, business to attend to. After quizzing little Jasper, you get him to admit sheepishly, if a mongoose can be sheepish, that his business involves paying a visit to a lady mongoose across town. Jasper says he will come back to you when he hears you blow the silver whistle, which only he can hear and which can be heard from miles away. So when you leave town, I'll come with you and look after you, he says. Sounds like a fair deal, so you set off for Entertainer's Square. Entertainer's Square, as we already know, is a great open space with benches and trestles and with drinking dens and stalls selling refreshments. Around you, minstrels, bards, street poets and animal trainers are entertaining the populace and looming above it all, the gladiatorial park dominates the square. Is Jasper with you? He is indeed. Well, I suppose I'd better do a few tricks, says Jasper miserably. Clearly your smart and helpful little companion considers this to be beneath his dignity. Do you want to tell him he doesn't have to, or do you really need the money? I really need the money. Little Jasper does some somersaults and twists, but his heart isn't really in it. You only get two gold pieces thrown to you by passers-by. Also, some of the local militia start to give you long, hard looks. They seem vaguely suspicious. Add one point to your notoriety. So we now have 23 gold and 4 notoriety. Now it is time to let Jasper go after the object of his affections, keeping the silver whistle to call him with you when you leave town. Now, do you want to stay in this district, go to the shops for supplies, or go elsewhere in town? So we will go to the food shop first, because we could really, really use some tuck. There are many food shops selling small sweet cakes, good bread, hot slices of peppered beef and poppy seed buns and other delicious foods. They also sell preserved food for adventurers. One gold piece will buy you enough for two meals, but don't forget you cannot carry more than 12 provisions in a backpack, and only four if you don't have a backpack. Okay, so we will buy four provisions and eat one of them in the street like an animal, taking us up to nine stamina. Using us two gold, 21 gold. So let's continue shopping elsewhere. And we'll go straight to the weapons store, uh, Ali Hashi Sheikh, and we will get a leather armor and a sword, leaving us with eight gold and get the backpack for nothing. And we'll get a lantern as well because lanterns are always useful. So now we're down to four gold and our notoriety is increased by two to six. And we're going to investigate uh, Holstadt. I know we're going to investigate the stables and travel store and see if there's anything there that we might fancy. Bokanon offers travel services of various kinds. He can sell you passage on a riverboat heading for Rahasta, the last town in the wastelands not very far from Kabesh. This costs ten gold pieces. After you have paid, you may leave by boat at any time. He can also sell you a camel for overland travel, which could take you all the way to Kabesh. The camel has the advantage that you could carry an extra twelve provisions in the beast's saddlebag. So that would be good. Uh, but um, Bokanon wants 18 gold pieces for a camel. He is sorry that he cannot offer you a cheaper animal, say a mule, but these have been in great demand lately for mule pies. 
Guessing I've got some preserved mule pies in my provisions. Uh, speaking of which, I'm going to take the opportunity to eat another provision while I can and get my stamina up to 30. Uh, I don't have enough money for any of these, so I am going to go to another part of town. Let's see if we can uh, get ourselves into a scrape in the old quarter where um, we heard rumours of a kidnapping plot. Have you been to the old quarter before? I have not. And have you met a necromancer? I have not. The militia are out in force today. There are rumours of grave robbing, murder and thievery, enough to make even the militia take notice. You don't want to be watched too closely by these brutes, so you decide to find another part of town to visit. Let's go to the docks. Maybe I'll be able to run into uh, some of my old shipmates now that I've uh, got a big sword and a shield and uh, some leather armour. We can uh, maybe uh, settle a few scores, that would be nice. And I have not been to the docks before. The docks are teeming with stevedores and seamen of a wide and disgusting diversity. <sighs> Could have gone with sailors. Could have gone with sailors. There are men, certainly, but there are also orcs and even some ogres, and one small crew of things which might once have been men, but now you shudder and look away. One group of drunken sea dogs is brawling and cursing, and out of the corner of your eye you notice a figure a small passageway behind one of the wharves, handing a package to a hunchback dwarf and taking a purse in return. It must be money. Why, the brown-robed figure is even counting the coins, and you can see the glint of gold in the sunshine. The dwarf vanishes down the alley. You could try sidling over and having a go at stealing the gold. Oh, I'll definitely have a go at that. Um, or continue looking around. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try and half inch his purse o gold. You advance on the figure, but he is very swift and guesses your intentions at once. From his robes he draws a long dagger with a discoloured curved blade and advances on you, hissing. Wretchedly, you have chanced on an assassin being paid for his work. You must fight him. If he wins an attack round each of his first three blows, will inflict four points of damage to your stamina because of the poison on his sword. After this, any further hits will mean only the usual two points being deducted. The assassin has a skill of nine and a stamina of nine, so for only the second time this adventure, and with every expectation of death, I'm going to roll some dice. I have been killed by the assassin. I reduced him to three points of stamina and I used one point of luck to try and save my life but it availed me nothing and yes, uh, that poison really does do an awful lot of damage very quickly. Interestingly, I'm not sure how that poison would interact normally with the luck rules. Um, I worked on the principle that a um, past luck test would enable me to take only two points of damage, halving the incoming damage, same as with a normal attack round, but I failed my luck test anyway, so it doesn't matter. So that is the end of this adventure, and I will go back and play through this on my own time. 
and then I'll be back for you with some closing remarks. I've had a tremendously good time with this adventure though. Wandering around a city, getting into scrapes is one of my very favourite types of role-playing fun and this does a really good job of delivering on that but with a very fighting fantasy feel to it if that makes any sense. I'm sure I'll talk about this at uh, greater length so I'm going to go away. Tatty bye. Having finished Master of Chaos I think it's basically great. Keith Martin seems to get better at functional design with each book he contributes to the series and that's definitely the right trajectory to be on. Overall, I'd place this as better than Stealer of Souls, but not as good as Vault of the Vampire. That's less about the mechanics and formal design, which are arguably even stronger here, but more that Vault of the Vampire felt quite fresh from a creative perspective, and Master of Chaos feels more like the sort of meat and potatoes premise that we've seen numerous times before. There's nothing wrong with meat and potatoes, though, Plenty of fine dining restaurants serve dishes that are basically meat and potatoes, and this is one of the best plates of meat and potatoes in the Fighting Fantasy series, but it does struggle to differentiate itself quite enough from the rest to truly linger in the mind. I don't mean that to sound too negative, because I did very much enjoy my time with this book. Being sent on a quest to save the world from poorly specified evil wizards and Fighting the spawn of chaos is not something I mind at all. I do feel a mild sense of apocalypse fatigue. The end of the world probably shouldn't feel as routine as it does by this point in the series, but the hackneyed framing doesn't detract from a really cleverly put together book that I very much enjoyed my time with. I think if you want to go for the existential threat, then you kind of need to go all in on it like Dead of Night did making it a pervasive element of the design, but also of the atmosphere. Dead of Night made the stakes more personal at the same time, which again made the book feel more memorable. I would have liked to have seen some kind of personal stakes here as well. Some evil wizard with a magic stick feels quite remote and not especially characterful. I didn't feel the same way towards the ultimate villain as I did towards the captain of the Diablo, and... I think there was a good argument for making him turn out to be the final boss. A story about racing an evil pirate to a magical artefact would have been a lot of fun and very satisfying to pull off. That's more or less it for the substantive criticism though. Everything else from here on in is just different flavours of fawning praise. Let's talk about the structure of the book first. The story is more or less a four-act structure with two big acts and two small acts working to bridge the larger areas and provide a sense of narrative. The two big acts are the cities of Ashios and the ruins of Kabesh, and these are both very open settings where you have plenty of freedom to explore. Meanwhile, the connective material, the journey on the extremely unpleasant ship, and the trek through the desert between Ashios and Kabesh are much more linear experiences. The linear portions act to give the book a sense of the passage of time, which can be an issue with more open areas, which seem to be taking place in a sort of never-ending present. The ship in particular is brilliant. Being thrust into a world where you are completely powerless is a jarring experience in a game book, and the fact that you're definitely going to come out the other end with reduced stamina to say nothing of a complete lack of equipment creates a 
unusual ambience compared to the majority of game books. It's closest to Trial of the Champions, but probably even better handled here. I don't think it's something that would be fun for a whole adventure, but as a set-piece introduction, it's great. The experience of being a galley slave is every bit as miserable and powerless as you would expect, and that's a cool thing to see represented in a game book. Well, maybe not a cool thing, but it's certainly an interesting thing. Similarly, the journey between Ashios and Kabesh feels like a harsh and difficult trek, in which the grinding monotony of travelling through the desert is punctuated by sudden moments of violence and danger. This is highlighted by the use of food. Provisions suddenly become extremely important. You have to eat every day and not one but two meals are required to keep your strength up. I love this because the sheer volume of food you'll need to consume if you travel by foot highlights that food is more than tasty medicine, which is how it tends to appear in most game books. Suddenly, food is given the opportunity to be food again rather than a pastry-wrapped bandage for what ails you. Plenty of books have thrown in the odd necessary meal to remind you that humans don't just eat after they've been stabbed, but Master of Chaos is the first one to really succeed in hammering home the message that food is an absolute necessity for life. There's nothing mechanically new in this, and that's something that's common in Master of Chaos, but there's the considered deployment of existing mechanics in order to create a specific effect. Seeing the possibilities in the mechanics which already exist is harder, I think, than creating entirely new mechanics. And it turns a journey into something that feels like a medieval or early modern expedition into the unknown, rather than simply a series of encounters. If the connective tissue is good, the main attractions are fantastic. We got a decent look at Ashios in the playthrough, but there's plenty of devilment in the details that bear closer examination. It's maybe not quite as thrilling as City of Thieves' depiction of Port Blacksand, but there's lots of memorable moments, and the freedom to explore in your own way makes for a very pleasant time indeed. I may be biased on this. Getting into scrapes in fantasy cities is possibly my favourite kind of adventure. I just really like the mixture of banal and surreal that fantastic urban locations can bring. One minute you're trying to stop a runaway horse and the next you're engaging in a spot of grave robbing at the behest of a demented necromancer. That's just delightful to me. There's lots of fun encounters throughout Ashios, but what's really nice is how many of them have a subtle story behind them. The necromancer you tangle with can have a profound impact on the later stages of the book, as can a cynical but honourable dark elf who you might meet on the Diablo. You can run into the dark elf several times, and if you do him a favour, he'll repay that debt. It sketches a relationship based on mutual respect, but also a recognition that you're on different sides in a war, and sooner or later you'll have to face each other in a fight to the death. That's the kind of relationship you see quite a lot in fiction, but it doesn't crop up nearly so much in game books. NPCs are hard, especially if you're going to meet them a few times. Keith Martin has given the elf a very simple arc, one that you can convey in a few sentences, but one that feels both satisfying and even a little sad when you reach the point where you finally have to kill each other. 
I was also overjoyed to discover that if you explore the docks, you have the chance to meet and indeed kill Captain Shagrot of the Diablo, running into a ship's captain in a place where ship's captains are wont to hang out isn't complicated design, but it is also immensely satisfying, not least because you are able to kill the sadistic bully and trader in human miseries. Turns out I really like settling old scores. What the Ashios portion of the book does extremely well is exploit the tension between notoriety and the need for money. There's actually plenty of money to be had in the city if you do things in the right order, and they won't all lead to unwanted attention from the militia. However, notoriety is a constant concern, with only eight to play with. Each mistake feels impactful without being the end of the world. While the gold is there, it's never doled out in amounts that make you feel safe and secure. Even on my successful playthrough, I never felt quite as though I could relax. I felt exactly like a slightly desperate hero, living on their wits and constantly trying to balance the desire to buy stabbing things with a desire to keep my head down. Do you really need that sword and armour right now, or can you leave it till the last minute? While notoriety is a new mechanic, money is another element that often raises its head, but rarely becomes a central concern. Like provisions, Keith Martin has taken something that's very casually used in game books and found a way of making it a core focus. It's something that only gets brought into sharper relief when you leave and realise just how many provisions you are going to need if you decide to travel on foot. Of course, you can book passage on a boat, but that costs money, it's more expensive, and perhaps there's things in the desert you might need later in your adventure. In the real world, food and money are both utterly central considerations of human existence, but they don't often get the same attention in fantasy gaming. That's possibly because most of us don't want to roleplay paying our phone bill, but Master of Chaos shows that you can make them fun without turning the story into the adventures of Conan and the tax self-assessment. When you finally arrive at Kabesh, it's also got an open design and some of the same features as Ashios, where doing things in the right order becomes important. I have to confess I was stealing myself for the final act to be a more traditional dungeon. There's quite a few books that have started well and then ended up with you traipsing down some corridors, listening at doors. Battleblade Warrior and Midnight Rogue both leap to mind as examples. I think that a ruined city which you can explore how you like is just a more appealing prospect than a classic dungeon. While there's some I remember fondly, Temple of Terror works extremely well, the majority of times I've found the final dungeon a slightly deflating experience. It was one of my criticisms of the Valley of Bones a couple of weeks ago that the dungeons felt underwhelming. I think there's a lot to be said for a more open design in which small, fairly linear areas can be accessed from a central hub or from a couple of mini-hubs. Partly this stems from my dislike of mapping, so this may be different for people who are better at visualising spaces than me, but I very much liked the approach taken in Master of Chaos. I also think that a ruined city, an abandoned castle, or a decaying mansion are more appealing locations to explore than a hole in the ground filled with 10 foot by 10 foot stone corridors. 
it's just very hard to make corridors interesting. What's interesting in any environment is the encounters and asking the player whether they want to explore the kitchens or the guest wing of the castle feels more involving to me than asking them if they want to go left or right at the next T-junction. In reality, most spaces have markers of utility that enable people to decode their function and intuitively map them. In A Forgotten Abbey, you know that there's probably going to be chapels for devotion, a library, sleeping cells for the monks, kitchens, cloisters, storerooms, and so forth. Unless you want to fill the intervening corridors with encounters, there's not much mileage obfuscating whether a corridor leads to the chapel or the kitchen. There's almost certain to be contextual clues, like the kitchen abutting a garden and being usually at the rear of a building, or the chapel roof which rises above the more functional areas of the complex. Design spaces have a logic to them which human beings are very good at grasping, and that can be a difficult thing to convey if you're just presenting people with a series of corridors. There's still scope for the more traditional dungeon environment, but I would argue in order to make them interesting in a game book, you have to make them weird. And frankly, the weirder the better, because that's what gets you away from pantries being next to kitchens and sleeping areas being near latrines. Living spaces make for very dull dungeons in many ways. I think that's one reason why a number of fighting fantasy books have a surreal, magical space as their final act, like you see in Phantoms of Fear and Slaves to the Abyss. There's a freedom to places like that, which gets you away from the tyranny of utility and internal logic. So I'm very much in favour of somewhere like Kabesh. It's an evocative place to spend time searching for a mad wizard's lair, the crumbling ruins in a harsh desert is always a decent image. It could possibly have been written a little more colourfully. Keith Martin's prose is very solid and readable, but I think something a bit overwrought would have provided a nice contrast to the more down-to-earth experience of Ashios. There's a nice range of different encounters, and the necromancer from earlier shows up, depending on the choices that you've made, which is very cool. There's also a couple of NPCs, a treasure seeker, and a group of nomads. Both of them give the experience a bit more life and encourage you to explore everywhere, even if you've already found the wizard's lair. You will sadly have to bid farewell to your mongoose, but that's just part of the life of the adventurer. All in all, from a structural perspective, this is an incredibly solid book. The final showdown with the villain is pleasingly expansive. There's more to it than simply a toe-to-toe -to -toe fight, and that's always nice. You even get the chance to sit down to dinner with him, which makes him come off more like a Bond villain than anything else, and that's another lovely little touch. There's an overall feeling that the author has looked at the core mechanics and the core tropes of fighting fantasy and made a concerted effort to do something with them. And this is excellent scenario design. Uh, look at what your game system, your game world does well, and build on that in a way that is unique and hopefully adds something new along the way. In terms of rules, we've already talked about the use of provisions and money and the notoriety system. The skills work perfectly well. They all have their uses, but none of them is absolutely required to beat the game. You can even pick up an item which duplicates one of the skills, 
which maybe makes that a less useful one to choose, but in the end, they do what skills should do, make life a bit easier if you've got the right one, and a bit more difficult if you don't. I think there is an optimum set to choose, but it's not a problem, so long as there's still a path to victory without making the right choices. As soon as you make a skill required to progress, you're taking away the fun of choosing skills. Skills are just a nice way to make subsequent playthroughs more varied and interesting, and that's always a good thing. There's a few combat tricks, generally fairly basic, but I do want to talk about the change rules for fighting more than one opponent. The core fighting fantasy rules for this are slightly cumbersome, with the player needing to choose who to fight, and only dealing damage if they beat that opponent's score, while fending off the other opponent's blow if they beat their score, but having no chance to deal damage to them. Keith Martin just rules that only the fighter with the highest combat value in a round deals damage, which is a much more elegant solution since it can be written in a single sentence. You get to choose who you damage if you win, but you need to beat both of your opponent's attack values to do so. It also reduces the incoming damage per round to two, since if both opponents beat your attack value, only the highest one counts. This is probably a better way of dealing with fighting multiple opponents, but it does come at the cost of decision-making in combat and restricting the range of possible outcomes. I think on balance, though, you're better off with a simpler core rule, which you can layer additional mechanics on top of, than a more complex rule that can be easily simplified. It's certainly one rule I'm thinking of stealing. There's some rules that don't quite work as well. There's a few occasions where it asks you if you have reduced a target to two stamina or less, and it's not entirely clear what happens if you test your luck and deal enough damage to reduce them to zero with a single hit. Now this is a very easy rule to forget since it almost never gets used in practice, but it should be noted that I did use it successfully in my recorded playthrough. The fact that this rule is so easily overlooked maybe suggests that testing luck in combat is an extra rule that maybe doesn't need to be there, or maybe needs changing into something a little more useful. Um, one thing I've considered is um, a rule whereby you can use your luck to effectively win a fight if the next attack would kill you effectively giving you a chance to be obscenely lucky and defeat the opponent. Uh, I'm not sure how that would work in practice, but it might make using luck in combat still a thing, but also curtail the number of situations in which you can use luck in combat. Now there's a hidden paragraph mechanic in Master of Chaos, but thankfully the hidden paragraphs don't feel as oppressive here as they might. For a start, they don't seem to be required to beat the game to the same extent they usually are. There is an item check towards the end, but it's not an item with a number on it, and the item itself is fairly close at hand. Mostly, the hidden paragraphs offer little Easter eggs, tantalising hints of intrigue, and this is by far the best way to do them if you're going to do them. Being told that you might have some saffron to sell if you know the secret paragraph makes me want to find the saffron. Being told I need to add the numbers written on three different bits of cheese together to open the final door to the boss 
makes me want to throw the book across the room. The latter is trying to make it difficult for me to cheat because apparently cheating is bad, and paradoxically that makes me want to cheat all the more because I am a contrarian in some ways and also a child. The former makes me wonder where the saffron might be found, which turned out to be more or less where I might have guessed it would be found. Secret codes create mystery, and mystery is good, but not at the cost of being able to enjoy the book however you choose. As a whole, I thought the difficulty of this book was really well judged. I found most of the secret paragraph items simply through having a good rummage around, something made much easier by the open design which doesn't punish you for taking a left when you should have taken a right. There's a focus on the kind of decisions that feel interesting, and though there's some tough fights, I think with the right choices, a character with a skill of 8 might be able to make it through, and a character with a skill of 9 or higher shouldn't have too many problems. A high stamina is an asset, but the book is fairly generous, doling out health as well as taking it away. So it isn't an absolute requirement unless you get a bit unlucky. The same goes for luck. A high luck is good, but a middling luck shouldn't prevent you from completing the game honestly. This one took me a few goes to get all the way through, but I felt like I was making progress each time, and that's all I really ask. The difficulty overall might be a bit low for some more hardened players, but it felt quite appropriate to me. I just finished playing Dark Souls 2, so I was genuinely quite pleased not to have a game book also kick my bottom for hour after hour. David Gallagher's art complements the action nicely. It's not going to be anyone's favourite illustrations, I don't think, but he's pretty good generally when he's allowed to use a lot of black ink to create deep shadows and contrast. There's a lot of mutated chaos beasts in the latter portions of the game, and this seems to bring out the best in him, as do pirates for some reason. Nice but not remarkable would be my assessment, but it definitely adds to the experience. I think that's all I've got to say about Master of Chaos. It's a standard fantasy adventure, but an extremely good standard fantasy adventure. There are some hard stretches, but the bulk of the adventure feels very fair, and the hardest bits can all be mitigated with the right choices, which makes them much less of a chore the second time you encounter them. I should mention that we've now hit the point where fighting fantasy books get considerably more expensive to buy. A combination of small print runs, a general view that the quality picks up during this phase of the series, and a lack of reprints means that I've not seen Master of Chaos on sale for less than £35. Happily, there are PDFs out there, and I don't think there's any ethical problem with using a PDF of an out-of-print book from the 80s. No one is losing money if you do. Obviously, having the actual book in your hand is nice, but uh, it's good that it's still possible to experience them without that. I think it would be nice to see ebooks of the whole series put out, but a fan-made PDF is considerably better than nothing, and it does make the series accessible for those without deep pockets. Next episode, we're going to be doing a horror book suggested by a listener, which I'm very much looking forward to for a number of different reasons. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. I'm also now on Blue Sky as hjdoom. I've no idea whether I will stay the course with this. I've had issues with social media in the past, but if you are on there, 
feel free to give me a follow. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.